Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture and the many issues impacting families today. Hey, I'm Liz Gumbiner. I'm the co-founder of CoolMomPicks.com. And today I'm going to welcome back Anya Kamenetz to discuss her new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. I know this is an issue that's impacted every one of us, literally, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And of course, we'll close out our show with our cool picks of the week. I'll be jumping in with Anya right after this. This episode of Spawned is brought to you by Dell. It just became so easy to spoil yourself or anyone in your life with the gift of technology this holiday season. That's because Black Friday is here early, yes, when you visit dell.com slash coolmomtech. From November 15th to November 27th, you'll get Black Friday early access savings on all kinds of Dell technology, whether you need a new XPS laptop for the family, an Inspiron 15 for the kids' schoolwork, or some top-rated gaming monitors and accessories to gift wrap for the holidays. Dell has you covered with their early access Black Friday deals. Just visit dell.com slash coolmomtech to see all the deals. That's dell.com slash coolmomtech, T-E-C-H, right now through November 27th, and check out all the latest holiday tech offers. The offers will change throughout the holiday season and some door buster deals have limited qualities. Those will definitely sell out. So be sure to shop early and you can find what you want and take advantage of those early Black Friday savings right away. So let me tell you a little bit about Anya Kamenes. She is a Brooklyn mom, like I am, but a far more accomplished writer. She speaks, writes, and thinks about generational justice and how children learn, grow, and thrive on a changing planet. She's an award-winning journalist who's covered education for many years. A lot of you know her for her work on NPR, where she co-created the podcast Life Kit Parenting. You may also know her articles and columns from Fast Company, The New York Times, Washington Post, New York Magazine, and Slate, among others, or maybe you've seen her on documentaries on PBS, CNN, or HBO. She is the author of so many acclaimed nonfiction books you may even own, including The Test, Why Our Schools Are Obsessed with Standardized Testing, But You Don't Have to Be, and The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life, which she actually spoke to us about on this very show back on episode 98. But today we're going to be talking about her newest book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now, which I know is something we are all discussing amongst ourselves these days. So welcome, Anya. Liz, thank you so much for having me. How are you feeling? I am okay. As I mentioned right before, <laughs> it's so interesting we're talking about COVID because my daughter was diagnosed with it this morning and uh, I probably have it as well. Fortunately, it's mild. We're doing okay. Praise the goddess for boosters. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it just feels like a cold and we're laying low and, you know, after two years, we're pretty good at that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so first of all, this book is spectacular and I, I know it came out in 
August, but right now we've just started hearing all this information and this new reporting about learning loss and test scores and the impact on math knowledge. I feel like that's all people are talking about in terms of the impact of kids from COVID. Mm -hmm. But really, the stolen year is so much more than that. It's really about all the different ways that the pandemic disrupted children's lives and not just educationally. What was interesting to me is it's about how our country has pretty much always failed to put children first and it all just blew up with COVID, right? So while it's all woven together, it's this kind of beautiful, honest series of stories from kids and teens from around the country that you talk to. And it's really about how all these issues started long before 2020. So can you just give us some background on that? I know I'm asking you to kind of summarize an entire book, but (laughs) um, talk to me about like what led up to this. So when, you know, school shut down in New York City in March 13th, 2020, I'm sure you remember where you were. I was in my home in Brooklyn, where I am right now, I have two little girls. They were three and eight years old at the time, but I also had a full-time job working for NPR covering education. And I had this background, as you mentioned, writing books and doing reporting. And I knew that school closures in particular were going to be a really big deal Mm. based on some of my experience reporting specifically after Katrina, which was the biggest example I could think of in recent times where we shut down schools. Obviously, that's not the first thing people think of when they think of the impact of Hurricane Katrina, but it did scatter many kids. They were out of school for up to a few weeks to a few months, and it took years for those young people to recover fully. And and in some ways, you know, the youth of the city of New Orleans have not fully recovered from all of the disruption that that storm brought. That was really the lens that I had. And thankfully, I also, I always have to say this, the reason I was able to actually report this book, which I did mostly from my home, was because I had, you know, my husband sharing childcare time with me. And we also had our downstairs neighbor who came into our bubble and gave us 20 hours a week from the very beginning, because this was a catastrophe for mothers, for working mothers in particular. And, you know, there's so many women who were in the same situation as me and didn't necessarily have the time to do this kind of work. Oh, absolutely. And we've talked about that with Catherine Goldstein. I mean, she was in a really similar situation to you in that she was writing and reporting on motherhood and the lack of institutional support when this hit and impacted her own lack of institutional support while she's reporting on it for other mothers. Yep. Did you find that personally? Like yeah. you're, you're writing about it as you're experiencing it. It was so interesting, Liz, because it lowered some barriers between me and my interviewees. Like whether I was talking to a housing insecure mother in St. Louis or I was talking to a Rand economist, Mm. like we were all suffering a little bit. Of course, we're not in the same boat, but we're in the same storm. And so thinking about that and thinking about how these burdens and the disruption really fell on families. There were so many times when both me and my interviewee would be almost in tears as we struggled to process what was coming at us. And we're still struggling to process it, which is really the point of the book. We keep saying in a post-pandemic world, like I find myself saying that, I hear it a lot. Are we actually in a post-pandemic world? We're in such a strange, complicated situation. You know, it's segmented by class, it's segmented by your health status, if you're immunocompromised, your household composition, generally the attitudes you take towards risk. And I never thought I would go back and be nostalgic for early lockdown. And I'm not. But at the same time, there was a brief period of time where it felt like people were somewhat on the same page. Mm. And now it's just so every person for themselves that I think it's it's really, really hard. And it's also hard to figure out whether we're going to move on, in what ways are we going to move on? Do we actually have time to process now what happened? I think these are all the questions that are coming up. For sure. And I, I agree. We're going to be talking about this for a long time. And I think what's interesting when I first opened the book is that you break the chapters down by subjects that are not just schools. And like I said, we keep talking about education, but yep. you talk about how it impacted hunger, childcare, special ed, racism, courts, mothers, mental health, politics. Yep. Which of these are 
we not talking about enough? Oh my gosh. I mean, I was just actually walking to my coffee shop this morning and thinking about the test scores that just came out, you know, the math and reading. Mm. And I was like, what if we had a massive national assessment of youth and mother's well-being? Like, where are you emotionally right now? What would it look like to focus on that as an indicator? And then what kind of actions would we take in response to that? Because my gut level feeling is people are not okay right now. And that not okayness didn't start with the pandemic, but it's certainly intensified with it. Yeah. And you go into detail about that. You know, I was really struck by something you wrote about, and you said you were haunted by it too. And it was a conversation you had with C. Nicole Mason at the Institute for Women's Policy Research. And you described her as one of the few Black women in charge of a major think tank in D.C. And she described the pandemic as being kind of this unifying moment because women at all levels of education and jobs realized collectively at the same time, the system is not working for us at all. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading this going, yes, yes, yes. And then you added in that she said they actually did some research. And it turns out that Black and Latina women said it was a unifying moment by like 50 to 60 percent, but only 30 percent of white women agreed. And I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but I was surprised. What's happening there? I mean, I think the sad truth is people are going to have their own interpretations of things and they're going to deal with the stories that may be most convenient for them or that they find accessible in their cultures. And so, and I think what we saw unfolding is that the pandemic came with these calls for, you know, certain kinds of restrictions. And depending on how you felt about the people in authority, politicians, scientists, where you put your trust in your neighbors, that determined kind of how you reacted to these conversations. And so as it went on, I feel like we wore these deeper and deeper grooves in our pre-existing conditions. It was like if you were a Democrat or you were a blue state person or a liberal, you wanted to adhere to COVID restrictions. And if you were not, then you rejected them because it was actually too much work, right? Like things were changing so quickly. The virus is still changing. The advice was changing. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, it costs you a lot in terms of your mental capacity to keep having to like shift and change and keep yourself updated. And are people really expected to read like the latest white papers and data to make their decisions? No, like you have to trust in some authority. So I think what happened was we had this low level of social trust and people just got further and further apart because they decided to trust whoever was closest to them before all this got started. Yeah, and you get into that in detail. And I keep reading recent surveys and statistics because I I do read the data in the white paper because I'm a total data nerd. And there is a significant overlap with like the highest number of deaths and hospitalizations and people who vote Republican or are in red states, which is awful to think about that, that politics managed to polarize this to agree that it literally killed people along political lines. It's devastating. It's devastating because those people are citizens. They're our fellow citizens. Some of them are our family members and our friends. And the idea that this kind of toxic ideology was allowed to spread to that extent is something that I think we can all take as a failing. You know, those of us who feel like we understood science or we trusted science, we also bear some responsibility for this because we're somehow living in a society where our neighbors are swallowing these kinds of things that have nothing to do with reality. And so how do Mm. we kind of continue on from here? Yeah, which is a lot of what you seek to answer in the book. And I'm hoping <laughs> that we'll figure that out at some point. Yeah. You know, another thing you talk about a lot, which I really like that you kind of look at people who are more marginalized or people whose stories aren't often told. And mm-hmm. you talked a lot about the impact on low income parents. Of course, there's a racial overlap there as well. Yeah. But I was really struck by the story you told about families in New York, because I remember this playing out at the time, that families were being reported as abusive or neglectful by schools because they were having trouble with remote learning. Like, like there were families in homeless shelters in New York City who had trouble getting Wi-Fi. And then those reports can lead parents to being placed on the statewide registry of child abusers. Yeah. I think your conclusion was that the schools were basically using child 
household welfare to blame families that they were not helping. And you just made it so clear that everybody was struggling, but we're all struggling in different ways. That really hit me. And I was just wondering, is that something you got the sense was happening nationwide from your research? Was that like a specific thing to New York and the number of kids in homeless shelters here? It was not specific to New York. And I would never have expected that a story about COVID would have turned into something where I had a whole chapter that kind of dealt with the child welfare system or what advocates and activists call the family policing system. Mm. But what it turned out to be so crucial for me to unlocking what I felt like was a puzzle, which is why did we not center kids, right? Why did we make all these decisions without thinking about what children really needed? Part of the answer to that I discovered was that historically, when we have children that are in trouble in our society, over and over again, our solution is to take them away from their families. Mm. So there's this concept of rescuing kids somehow. And sometimes it's really ugly and it's easy to see how ugly it is. For example, the Indian boarding school system, right? which it's like kill the Indian and save the man. So we're going to take this kid and make them into something else. Mm -hmm. And that's very clear. That's cultural genocide, cultural erasure, family erasure. In the family policing system, in the child welfare system, it's not that clear because we have created this system where we demonize parents, right? And we say, well, this person's an abuser and therefore they can't have their kid. The reality of it is so much more complicated. Most removals happen because of neglect, which is essentially because of poverty. In cases where there is abuse, I mean, there are abuses in all kinds of families at all kinds of income levels and levels of privilege. And that obviously deserves intervention and treatment and help. But the idea that we think that we can help children without helping their families is sort of the basic mistake, fundamental mistake that we keep making. And the idea that by punishing, for example, in the case of these kids who don't have computers or a quiet place to learn or internet, that by punishing their mothers, making them go to court, we're going to improve their situation. You know, it's so wrongheaded when you start to break it down. But I think that's what's so interesting about the book overall is that you kind of go back to these historical points that show us how the institutional failures in this country led up to this. This wasn't just like the schools closed and should or shouldn't have closed and therefore now we have problems. I think you used an analogy about the dam breaking, right? Yeah. That it finally just exposed and laid bare all of these problems that were there to begin with and that our kids kind of suffered most from it. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. And it was amusing to me as well as I was like, oh my God, I have to go back hundreds of years to really explain the thinking behind this. And I think the reason is that these were liberal that were doing this, right? Like people who were progressives, people that saw themselves as being on the side of kids yes, kind of backed this whole policy of depriving kids of, of the basics that they needed. And so to me, that required some like pretty deep layers of explication and exploration. Well, nobody knew the right thing to do to your point. Even those of us who try to keep up with the latest, <laughs> it was like first like close the schools, close the schools. I know I was on Twitter on March 12th screaming close the schools yeah. because it was so clear that this was like a major pandemic hitting. And then suddenly it was like, wait, wait, what about kids who got their heat and their safe space and their food? from schools. And then it was like, yeah. okay, make sure that we have food still available. And then suddenly it was like, well, maybe we should open the schools. I mean, I think it was just really hard to know what was the right thing to do. And I think the hardest thing for a lot of us was that the experts that we count on to know these things didn't seem to know either. You know, they didn't know or they didn't make the tough calls, right? Because hmm. if you look at what happens, there were real values in conflict, values between viral spread and these basic needs that kids were going without. Mm -hmm. That's why 
suddenly this category emerged essential services. Okay, well, what's an essential service? And then cities had to decide overnight what's an essential service, what's not an essential service. To me, the mistake that we made was we didn't really think hard enough about whether or not schools were an essential service or whether the essential services that schools provided to those for whom they were essential Mm -hmm. could be provided in some alternative way. I think New York actually did better than a lot of places because they did keep school buildings open, which a lot of people don't know. Yeah. They served about 10,000 kids. Yeah. And not just kids. They were like, we will not check IDs if you need food and you are quote unquote part of the community, you know, school community, come and we'll feed you. Well, I mean, food programs across the country pivoted and did heroic efforts. Those heroic efforts did not stop a huge spike in child hunger. But we actually not only did that, but we had kids in the school buildings during the day with these rec centers for childcare as well. So there was some effort, but it was not enough. And as the school closures dragged on, the effort of actually providing these essential services to kids really lagged. And to me, that happened because we have a really bad habit of relying on mothers all the time Mm. to be that care infrastructure. And we're not that good at creating backups for that. So what do you think are some of the ways that primary caregivers and mothers in particular have been impacted by this or continue to be impacted? Oh my gosh. I mean, to me, it changed everything about how I thought about what the feminist movement was and what Mm. it could do. I talked to one of the co-authors of Lean In, that book, Mm -hmm. about this. And I was like, you know, I was in college when that book came out. And basically you told me if I just worked hard enough, was ambitious enough, (laughs) that I would fight my way to the top and no inequality could touch me because I would negotiate my way out of the pay gap. I would hire my way out of the care gap and I would just be able to win. And that's how we're going to get rid of structural problems. Then the pandemic happens and all over the place, it's like mothers are stepping back. Mothers are doing most of the childcare. Mothers are doing most of the homeschooling. Mothers are overly stressed out. Mothers are drinking. Mothers are gaining weight. All these findings, right? Oh yeah, I'm familiar. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, not just findings. It's definitely not theoretical. This is very real stuff. And it was like, oh, Oh, like what happened to this equality stuff? I thought there'd be some kind of conversation about fathers not letting this happen in the cases where there were fathers. And it didn't happen. And, you know, you can't have feminism that only relies on people winning the economic game. It has to be for everybody and it has to be intersectional and it has to be personal as well as political. Are you seeing progress here now? Like, you know, a year after, quote, the pandemic is over. I know that's still up for debate, but are you seeing any progress? Is there any hope for the future? In terms of that (laughs) feminist conversation? Yeah, in terms of our support for moms, for caregivers, for dads stepping up for that intersectional equality that you're talking about. Do you see any movement? I gotta be honest, Liz. I mean, we put the care agenda on the Build Back Better package. There was a clear set of policy priorities, which was paid family leave, childcare subsidies, and a child tax credit. So that went there. Then it got cut. It got cut from Inflation Reduction Act. So we clearly don't have the political clout as families to push for that. Childcare industry is in shambles. There is a really terrible drop in employment in childcare, which means that there's a childcare desert, which makes it much harder for mothers, in fact, to return to work. I don't know what's going on with parents' well-being, with mothers' well-being in general. I know in my family, in my community, there's a lot of struggles happening as people try to pile back on all of their responsibilities and, and somehow try to make it work. I think the conversations move forward. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we're all talking about it more. Yeah. That to me is the first step. I mean, even the fact that it was 
was in Build Back Better. Yeah. We've never had that before. Yeah. So I see movement towards this because it's in the national consciousness now to a greater degree. And I think probably across party lines, I think, you know, the pandemic laid bare institutional issues that are impacting moms, regardless of who you vote for, or what state you live in. So I'm trying to be optimistic about it. I know we're not going as fast as I would like. And for a lot of us, we don't have that many years before our kids are out of the home. And then mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we just have to hope that we did our best. But, you know, one of the promises in the book, I, I mean, I think this is something we all know, but I love that you just write about it so clearly, is that all of this is going to have generational impact yeah. on kids, on caregivers, on everybody, right? There's just going to be generational impact as with war or 9-11 or any other major events. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering, like, from your research, from all the experts, from the kids you talk to, what do you think are generally some of the negatives that you think will happen over the long term? And what are some of the positives that we hope can come out of this? So you know, I kind of think about like the horse moving through the python, right? Like these impacts, <laughs> they will move in a wave and they will take time to digest. But we have seen a very large drop in college going. Mm. We've also seen a drop. I saw recently uh, a survey that showed a 20 percentage point drop among Gen Zers in whether they're even considering four-year college. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just one survey, but it is a major issue where now it's interesting because maybe it's not four-year college, but maybe they'll be interested in two-year college or trade school certificate programs. And that's a transition that's kind of been a long time coming, but certainly it's a change. And the drop in test scores that you're seeing now, without a major, major effort, there is going to be some percentage of kids that will kind of stay below that line and they will either have trouble graduating high school, they'll have trouble going to college. So you have over generally this kind of depression in the workforce. You know, I, I want people who don't have kids to care about this because this is affecting the entire economy. So that's kind of some of the economic stuff and some of the how it intersects with educational stuff. Mm. The positives... Well, a negative that could turn into a positive. We have so much more awareness and so much more conversation around mental health and mental well-being. We do. That's a great point. And our teens are really showing us the way to say that it's okay to not be okay, that vulnerability is part of your strength, and that as long as we can meet them where they're at and give them the tools that they need for well-being, I think that that could be very positive because we could see a generation coming up that really takes social emotional well-being really seriously. And wouldn't that be wonderful thing. (laughs) Yes, Um, it would. (laughs) So I was just reading a professor who was doing a study on students transition into college. So these are students at a Midwestern private college. And a lot of them talked about how what they're hoping to do is stay in good shape and move their bodies and take care of themselves mentally and make time for friendship. So there's a lot of goals that they have at college beyond kind of the academic or the achievement oriented. So I think that's a really interesting possible development. I mean, one thing about the book is that it's not all, I mean, a lot of it is hard to read and have and the stories are upsetting and some of it brings back stuff I kind of wish I had forgotten about. But there's also a lot of positivity and support for what parents were able to do for their kids and how much they were able to put things aside and just make things work. And if I may, I just wanted to read something you wrote in the beginning, which I loved. It made me very emotional to read it. You wrote, we the people who hopelessly love children filtered 2020 for them as much as we could. Like a mask, we laid down multiple protective layers of love, playfulness, and electronic distraction. We camped in the backyard, built pillow forts, taught our kids to read, supported them when they struggled. They saw us struggling too, barking at each other, crying when it all got to be too much. We sang and we danced and we read stories over Zoom. We returned to the exhaustion we'd known as parents of newborns, discovered new reserves of energy we didn't know we had, and then burned those up too as we wondered when this would ever end. And against all odds, as they always do, our children grew. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Does this mean that you have some optimism that we as parents are going to get it together and step up as we always do? Or do you feel like there's just too much against us yet so far? The reason that I love being around this whole world of children and their development as a mom, but also professionally, is that when we are in the realm of kids, we're in the realm of potential. Anything you do for them now is going to compound down the road. You can give them that adverse experience or you can give them that beneficial experience, that moment they're going to be holding on to. And I really think that there is potential in this moment for the simple reason that it gives us the opportunity to focus on what's most important. It was never about our kids' external achievements or their test scores. It was always about their well-being. It was always about their physical health. It was always about our families supporting each other. And now we know that that's true because we saw that that was what was necessary for our survival. That is what gives me hope. I mean, that's the practice of hope, right? It's acting with intention to make something better in the future. Well, isn't that the definition of parenting at its best? Yeah. I think that's really wonderful. I was really impressed that you just talked to so many kids from around the country and teens. Mm -hmm. Was there anyone one thing that just really stood out that you'd like people to know about? Or was it like the collective takeaways from everything you heard as a, as a whole? It's been an incredible tapestry, but if I could have a second for people who do read the book and read the story of Heather, whose little boy was shot in St. Louis, mm -hmm. because I've been in touch with her lately and she wants people to know that she actually has lost custody of her younger children uh, and she's working really hard to get them back. So I'm just going to put a word in for that for people who read that story and want to know what happened next because none of the headwinds that families like Heather faced during the pandemic. None of them are new and none of them have really gone away either. Well, like I said, the book is, I don't even think that people know what to expect when they open the page. It is absolutely extraordinary. It's beautiful storytelling. If you know Anya's storytelling on NPR or the op-ed pieces she writes, or even like how NPR tells a story generally, you'll understand like how beautifully told and compelling the book is. And I'm going to be thinking about it a really long time. And um, I'm sure we're going to need you in three years to write the update. Thank you so much. <laughs> so the book is called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now by Anya Kamenetz. And Anya, where's the best place to find you? Where do you like to chat with people in case people have questions? Twitter, Instagram? I'm going to say Instagram. Yeah, Anya Kamenetz is my Instagram, my first last name. And also I have a monthly newsletter, which is a tiny letter and you can look at my name. Excellent. And you're at anyakamenetz.net. Yes. And we'll have this all linked up on the Cool Mom Picks podcast page and in our show notes for anything that you heard about today. Perfect. And so now it's time for Cool Picks of the Week! Cool Picks of the Week! Anya, as our guest, you get to go first. What's cool to you? So I am, for multiple reasons, exploring platforms other than Twitter. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Um, so I just opened up Mastodon and I have heard of some people joining Mastodon. I still don't totally know how it works. So if people want to chime in and let me know, but it basically it's distributed social networking. And I'm also spending time on Instagram. I'm even spending time on LinkedIn. I don't know where we're going to land, but that's the idea. I think that's why my sub stack is going to come out soon because then it'll be something I can own in case I get kicked out of everywhere else. Yeah. And by the way... I'm not paying for a blue check. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh-uh. No way. <laughs> That's another topic. Yeah. So my cool pick of the week, Christina, our associate editor, and I have just spent many, many, many months updating our ultimate birthday gift guide, where we have the best gifts for kids by age from one right through teens. It's really good. It's very thoughtful. Ooh. It's perfect in time for the holidays. But I have to say, our like one of my favorites to do is gifts for teens, because first of all, it's hard. And second of all, I have teens, so I'm interested in it. One of the things we had in there was this makeup kit from a company called Fluid, F 
F-L-U-I-D-E, Fluid Beauty. And I just found out they're closing. I'm so sad. I had met Laura Kraber, who was the co-founder once. She was so cool. It was just this really amazing company that was all about vegan and cruelty-free cosmetics that's really designed for different gender expressions and skin shades. And it was so inclusive. So if you go to fluid.us right now, you can get 60% off of everything there as they close, which I'm sad for them. I know they'll go on to something new and wonderful, but that's a cool tip as we head towards the holidays, if you can get on that quickly. And I will say, if you go into our gift guide for teens, we added in a company called Morph, M-O-R-P-H-E, which is a brand. They also kind of go out of their way to support LGBTQ plus and BIPOC causes. They're at Ulta. They're fairly mainstream, but they do good things. I love that recommendation. I'll have to check this out. I've got one turning six next week and then another one turning 11 next month. So, Well, I can send you the links for the best birthday gifts for six-year-olds and the best gifts for nine to 12-year-olds for tweens. Amazing. I really appreciate it. Anya, thank you so much for joining us. I hope everybody picks up the book. And hey, thanks to all of you for joining us for another episode of Spawn. Huge thanks to our awesome engineer, John Bowen, and to our fabulous guest, Anya Kamenetz. If you've got a moment and can leave us a five-star review, we'd greatly appreciate your time by doing that and subscribing. You really help us out and help other people like you find us. You can also join us in our Spawn podcast community on Facebook or find us on Twitter. or Instagram these days where we talk about the show topics and pretty much anything else you'd like to talk about. We're at Cool Mom Picks or I'm personally at Mom 101. Thank you so much for listening to Spawn. This is Liz. Have a great day. Hold up. 